Stephen's growing a beard like Stanley's. <laughs> yes, I do model myself on uh, Stanley. I've even got uh, three daughters like Stanley. Oh, oh right, okay. <laughs> and, and he spoke with the same dialect. <laughs> Northern England, yes. <laughs> well, I'm from the Bronx. I have the Bronx in He didn't like the Bronx. He didn't like New York. He kept telling us how rude they were in New York. Oh, really? Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. He said you'd ask them, you know, have a good day, and they'd say, why? It's Kubrick's Universe, the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Hey there, guys and gals, boys and girls, Kubrick fans of all ages, hell, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Kubrick's Universe. So, this past month, November 2021, I'd like to tell you about something that was started, founded, 10 years ago, on the 26th of November 2011, to be precise. While Stephen Rigg was eagerly awaiting the birth of his third daughter, Evie, he decided to create the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society. Facebook groups, as a Facebook feature, was fairly new, and he decided to see how it would go to create the first Stanley Kubrick group. We think one other predated it, but it never took off. After a slow start to member growth and content, both things began to take off. There were more people, more discussions, and more multimedia being shared. As the group grew, and as Stephen got to know fellow fan James Marinaccio in early 2014, he asked him if he would like to help with administration of the group. We were amazed at how quickly the numbers grew, but we also saw more spam, more lurkers who contributed nothing, and more people who did not even know who Kubrick was. So we decided to choose quality over quantity and make the group private. Instituted member approvals, post approval, and even a questionnaire to get in. Then we had a long period of admin trials, if you will. We finally settled on the current team of Mark Lentz, James Robert Sherman, and founder Stephen Rigg. It has not been easy. At times, it is like writing War and Peace in a bumper car. Wait, where have I heard that before? Oh, right, that's Kubrick's own analogy to filmmaking. Okay, maybe not War and Peace, maybe the Da Vinci Code? 
The result is a really robust forum to discuss all things Kubrick. It's been amazing how there seems to be a never-ending stream of discussion on a director who passed away 22 years ago and who only made 13 feature films. The Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society has been full of regular, dedicated members for all these years, and even a surprising amount of people who knew him and worked with him. Even a few family members have graced the group. We have even had a sprinkling of celebs. I mean, Tom Cruise still won't join, but, you know. But we do have some film directors, actors, and writers. In fact, SCAS has been a great place for the Kubrick scholar community to come together. It has also been a place for some to turn casual fandom into more involvement, hooking up with the right people to help on projects such as films, articles, books, and <clears throat> even a podcast. SCAS members even found Kubrick's elusive 17th project, the footage from his TV work on Young Lincoln. SCAS members have found rare footage of Kubrick himself in other people's films, Easter eggs in his own work, and uncovered information on old projects he worked on. We are pretty sure that we also got two Kubrick films into the U.S. Library of Congress. Not too shabby. The Library of Congress accepts public voting for its accrual selections. They have a form online. In 2018, we were asking all our members to vote for The Shining to get in. Rather than just say, go to the form and ask for every Kubrick film, we thought it would be much more effective to focus on one at a time and just vote, vote, vote. We reminded the group several times during the year, and it got in. And we did it again in 2020 with A Clockwork Orange, and that got in too. So now those films are in their special list in addition to a few other Kubrick films that had already been chosen. They also preserve a copy in their vault, so after the zombie apocalypse, people will still be able to see Jack Torrance and Alex DeLarge. SCAS has also expanded its own brand by adding a Twitter account, a YouTube channel, and we even tried a Tumblr account. That one didn't work out too well. And something else. What was that? Oh yeah, <clears throat> a podcast. So, you may see the Hitchcock-Kubrick mashup a gazillion times, or... The Polish Shining poster gets shared 10 times a month by a new person who just discovered it, or endless Shining memes about the axe in the door or the twins, but you also get times like when the footage of Japanese journalist Junichi Yao visiting Kubrick hit YouTube. Scass was buzzing like a beehive for days after that. Or the Alan Bowker footage of when Kubrick needed help setting up his own personal computers. Same when 2001 was out in IMAX, same with lots of exciting things that people find, share, or even create themselves. The conversations and content keep going forever and ever and ever. So Stephen, after the first year or so of posting to a very few members, saw that over time, it really grew. As of its 10th anniversary in November 2021, the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society has almost 24,000 members worldwide. And his daughter Evie will also be 10 years old this month. So we're closing in on our 50th episode, and this one is pretty cool. Pretty darn cool. We interviewed Michael Tarn, 
who is a British stage, film, and television actor. Michael Tarn started his acting in his teens and went on to appear in a whole host of brilliant British television shows, including Play for Today, The Sweeney, Shoestring, The Life and Times of Lloyd George, The Knock, and several notable plays of the month. His film roles include John McKenzie's film Made in 1972, and he had lead roles in It's a Lovely Day Tomorrow, directed by John Goldschmidt, the title role in Zigger Zagger, directed by Ron Smedley, and in 2000, he played the part of Vic in Shooters, directed by Colin Teague and written by and starring Lewis Dempsey and Terrence Howard, with Emily Watson, Gerard Butler, among a whole host of other well-known British actors. Among his theatre credits, they include spells with both the RSC and National Theatre Companies, with critically acclaimed parts as Rick in Sticks and Bones, with Peter Weller as Rex in City Sugar by Stephen Polakoff at the Comedy Theatre with Adam Faith, Jacques in Jacques and His Master by Milan Kundera, and Sam in Crossing Delancey by Susan Sandler. He was head of drama at Stage Door School of Performing Arts in Benidicel, Spain, and has directed over 20 plays and musicals. But Michael will probably always best be known to movie fans around the globe as one quarter of the magnificently scary and over-the-top droogs in Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange. The youngest droog of them all, Pete, was actually the only actor of the four who was actually a teenager. The other three were in their mid to late 20s at the time. So we really hope you'll enjoy this interview with Michael Tarn. It was conducted during the 10th year anniversary of the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society and well into the fourth year of our podcast, Kubrick's Universe. Stephen Rigg and James Marinaccio conducted this interview. Go on, have a listen then. Hi, Mike. Um... Could you tell us how you got the role initially in A Clockwork Orange? Well, I was actually, um, I think I, I was 15, maybe 16, when the first round of auditions came. And literally every agent in London was given the um, breakdown. And uh, one of the agents came to my drama school and said, can we see your mid-team guys because there's a film coming up? And... Uh, we uh, just had to pass the first chat, first meeting with the um, the agent who was then going to put you forward. Yeah. Well, I was lucky that one of the agents was an agent for my father, who was a very well-known stuntman. And uh, they said, oh, you know, th there's something up here. D does Mike want to go for it? And uh, so I said, yeah, absolutely. So they contacted the school. About a dozen of us went up to Malcolm's house in Kensington, which uh, yeah, was pretty impressive there. And uh, we sat in the lobby and fed into the front door and up the stairs into this small room where Malcolm and Stanley were. So the, literally the first audition was with Stanley, which is very rare. You know, Brilliant. we normally have a few phases before getting to the one. And um, that was quite intimidating and awe-inspiring because... 2001 was an absolute fabulous film then and uh, to meet the man who was created it was you know brilliant absolutely brilliant 
So uh, they gave us the script to work on, which was the Billy Boy scene, which they filmed in the lobby of the uh, university. And uh, it just so happened I was the last person they saw that day. And uh, I think it was it was the best thing. Um, we I read the script with Malcolm. He's obviously much older. Um, I really thought he was going to be playing one of the older characters. I didn't know the story then. I didn't realise he was going to be playing the teenager. And so, you know, trying to sort of give it something. And uh, I was in there for nearly an hour, uh, improvising, chatting, talking. Stanley was very patient. Try this, Mr. Tarn. Try this, try that. Actually, I wasn't Michael Tarn then. I was still in with my normal name, Mike Martin. Um, uh, I had to change. Uh, I went to do equity when I got the part. I then had to go do equity. And they said, oh, you can't use Mike Martin. There's already a Mike Martin. Ah. So I went every family name I could. And uh, one of the names was Asher, Mike Asher. Well, um, absolutely, through different uncles and aunts, we were related to Irving Asher, who was had a name in Hollywood at some stage. So, um, and uh, they, they formed William Morris Agency. Oh, and right. that is a family connection there. Mm. And uh, but that I found out later. So um, I was getting anxious because I thought, if I don't have a name, I don't have a part. And I was in the equity offices and there was a picture of a mountain with a tarn. I thought, well, that sounds a bit good. I, I bet the Yanks <laughs> would love that. Mike Tarn. <laughs> So uh, I chose Mike Tarn for my sins, and uh, that was it for the next uh, 20 years. What kind of experience had you had before walking to that audition? Right. Um, roundabout, because my, my father was in the business, I had little snippets of things to do um, on different little films and TVs. So I had had some experience. Um, my best experience was, funnily enough, when... Um, I went as a 14-year-old to audition for the Royal Shakespeare Company to play the part of Fleance in the Scottish play. And uh, funny enough, Malcolm was carrying a spear then, you see. He doesn't admit to it. He didn't like it. Oh. But, uh, he was carrying a spear, and um, so I got the part of Fleance in uh, the Scottish play and with Paul Schofield, Vivian Merchant, wonderful array of actors, Ian Richardson. And I spent over a year with the Royal Shakespeare Company and a brilliant experience. And so when I was at drama school, they knew me that, you know, uh, Mike was an actor because he was doing proper acting. Yes. And that fed into little bits and pieces on TV, Zed Cars, Softly, Softly, things like that. Mm. So I'd had a bit of experience, but no featured roles. It was building. The auditions were building. The callbacks were building. And it just so happened um, I'd been doing a play called One for the Grave, and uh, it was very similar in character to this mid-Atlantic um, type of um, uh, overlord of a film studio or a TV studio. Yeah. And I was giving it a real attitude. And I think I brought that into the audition. Right. And uh, so it just clicked. From your point of view, why do you think uh, Stanley cast you? I meant to ring up Stanley yesterday and ask him, but... <laughs> Yeah, no. I've no idea. I think he wanted a teenage perspective because even during filming, he would always ask what I thought, whether I had any input. He never actually stopped me from ever entering the Holy of Holies, which was his editing cabin. 
The door was always open to me. And if I had something I could sell him, say to him, speak to him, watch it and have an input. Uh, Malcolm, I don't think all, the, all appreciated that all the time, um, but it was something which I'm eternally grateful to Stanley for, for allowing me to be in the early days before the pressure of finishing the film and money was getting tight and all that, of actually uh, having an input. And I think it's because he liked the teenage perspective, even if it didn't fit quite in with the, you know, the, what he was doing with it. Yeah, because the other th- the other three droogs were all in their mid to late twenties. Yeah, they'd almost retired, most of them. Yeah, and what were you sixteen, seventeen when you started? Sixteen when I started filming, because it was quite a long time after the uh, interviews, the auditions, mm. and it was a, a, a phone call, you know, which um, just came out the blue. Oh, when do I start? Well, actually, next week. Um, knew nothing about the character. Uh, so I went out and got the book, and in fact, the book showed me there was no character. I thought the book is the thinnest <laughs> series of characterizations ever, apart from Alex. So um, I just didn't know what to expect. And we spent those uh, two or three weeks in Stanley's house every day. Milena, the costume lady, used to pick me up from the station, drive me to Stanley's place. And um, we started filming, I think, in the September or something or of that year of 1970, was it, or 69? can't remember. Yeah, September 70, I've heard, yeah. That was marvellous because I had the, the, the run of his house. We had his own little annex where we used to talk about things. The characters got to know Warren, got to know Jimmy, etc. Um, practiced a few little scenes out. Um, the rest of the time, or, you know, uh, what are you going to do, Mr. Tarnas? I don't know what to do. Mm. I'll tell you what, I'll make you all a cup of tea. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Tarn. So I'd go off into the kitchen, I'd make them all coffee and tea while they spoke about these higher levels of characterization and everything. Um, because all I thought I was there was to kick people's heads in. <laughs> and to, to make up the numbers. In a way, but uh, I was part of the process. I wasn't just shoved to the side, which was brilliant. He did, Stanley didn't mince around he didn't mess around if he didn't like you he'd, he'd say bye-bye mm. and he did that to quite a few different characters and people and actors they weren't quite what he wanted so um when you say why did he with me i'm very pleased he did don't really have an idea why except just the teenage angle is the only thing because he did bring me into the conversations and ask advice or suggestions or whatever and and how did the, the rehearsals go? Uh, it's just interesting. It was all just new. Nobody knew what to expect. And they were just the same um, uh, for the others as they were for me. So, um, you know, Jimmy didn't have a clue what was going to happen. He knew his lines. He knew his part. But we were trying to form. So when it started, Milena used to come out with the costume ideas. And I think a guy called Ron who was the wardrobe guy, and they were bringing out all these surgical bits and pieces to stick on you and all that. We were just sort of trying to work it through. Uh, I actually, in my um, sort of creations, um, brought about the eyes, which he used as cufflinks. Right. Um, Initially, they started either side of the codpiece. But, um, you know, gradually it was just a working, working these what would work, what would work, what would work. 
And so I've, in the end, I came out with the um, eyelash and the um, blue and red makeup, which, because it looked good, was then transferred to Malcolm. Mm. Yes, right. So it ended up in my career. <laughs> okay, so as far as the script goes, was there a working, a finished script at this point at Abbott's Mead? I remember receiving the full script, but literally it was the book just transcribed. Yeah, into yeah. A, so, you know, um, security was very tight. You couldn't say anything. You couldn't talk anything. You couldn't share it. You couldn't, you know, uh, I used to have to go home to my parents. And they say, oh, what did you do today? I went, mm. very, mm. very frustrating, but that was the deal. The secrecy around it was amazing. So how did you, how would you go and learn your lines? I, I, I presume you couldn't take the script away with you, or could you take um, the script? I didn't have to learn lines, Stephen. I had to learn words. Yeah, okay. As I said, if you read the book, there's so little that Pete does. But, um, you know, uh, I guess the broad shoulders look good in the uh, in the costume. Hmm. Filming took place between September 1970 and April 71, making a clockwork orange. Originally, the contract was for six weeks. Was it? And it, and it ended up being and six, six weeks. Six contract. And I, and I said, oh, that's brilliant, because I'm, I'm going to be doing a play in November, which I don't want to miss. And it went on, and they said, no, you're not doing a play. So it, it started to get a bit wearisome at times, um, simply because of the longevity of it all, that they were long filming days. September went into October to November. It was dark when you left in the four o'clock in the morning. It was dark when you got home at eight or nine o'clock at night. Um, uh, I was missing a certain amount of my education, which required a lot of um, angst mm. from my parents. And everything. But you couldn't do anything. It was a long process. Um, and they were calling it um, a clockwork odyssey by November so it was um <laughs> it was getting a bit tense at times um because no one really knew what Stanley wanted Stanley didn't really know what Stanley wanted no I think that's his process isn't it I think that's the way he's always worked certainly on his last uh last half of his career it's been a case yeah. of kind of discovering discovering on set hasn't it um, that's right and the, that's why the cost of spirals which obviously the money men didn't like at Warner Brothers or whoever backed it. Mm. But um, it, that was the creative process. We could do a whole week of filming and he'd throw it all away. So, so the shoot went on for about about six months, um, I've heard. Did you have to be available on set for the, most of that six months, whether you were shooting or not? You get your call. They know, you know, if you're going to be needed for the scenes that Stanley wanted to know. I, I, I would say I was on probably for about 80% of the time, but sometimes just for one shot or right, one idea. Yes. One mm. idea. Yeah. You know, a lot of ideas didn't didn't make it. But, um, yeah, it, it, was, it was very long. And uh, even on by the final day, I mean, Malcolm really had to whip Stanley up to have an after-show party. <laughs> right, did it? He just said sort of... Okay, it's finished, guys. But Malcolm said, "You can't do that to them. We've all been together for six months." So, what did what did the what did the uh, after filming party consist of? The pine. The last scene that I filmed was the um, the Durango inserts 
on the, you know, yeah. with the back screen. And I won't tell you how many times Warren farted during filming. <laughs> and it was and it was indoors as well, so you couldn't waft it away, could you? Yes. Absolutely not, no. <laughs> the Durango 95 purred away real horror show. A nice, warm, vibratory feeling all through your gutty woods. Soon it was trees and dark, my brothers, with real country dark. That was the last scene I filmed and then literally finished. Oh, and by the way, we're going to have an after-show party tonight. Oh, OK. Won't take long. <laughs> it didn't. <laughs> Took about two hours. Oh. I remember. <laughs> You know, so it, it, I think everyone had really been, you know, mm. um, we, we, we'd, we'd mentally finished by then. I think Malk most certainly had mentally finished by then. And uh, Stanley just wanted to get into the editing booth. Of course, yeah. And I mean, uh, Clockwork was Stanley's quickest shoot, being six months, but that's a really long shoot in normal terms. I mean, I think the average is about three months on a Hollywood, a massive Hollywood film, and that's the average. Um, six months uh, is a long time, isn't it? It really is on one project. Well, I thought six weeks for about five words, yeah, that would be fine. That's great. <laughs> a word a week. <laughs> that's a bit. Okay, so so all right then. So now we're on to the film. Can I can I ask you a few questions about particular scenes that you were in? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so one of the most memorable um, shots in any Kubrick film is probably the opening dolly shot uh, right at the beginning yeah. when we were first introduced to the Droogs with Malcolm's voiceover. There was me. That is Alex, and my three Droogs. That is Pete, Georgie, and Dim. And we sat in the Corova milk bar trying to make up our Razudos what to do with the evening. The Corova milk bar sold Milk Plus. Milk Plus, Velocet, or Synthamesk, or Drencrum, which is what we were drinking. This would sharpen you up and make you ready for a bit of the old ultraviolence. Uh, it seems like a fa fairly technical shot, and this was shot. Straight after the Christmas break in 1971, 1st of January. Yeah. Straight, straight back to work on the 1st. Um, yeah. Do you, uh, what memories do you have of filming that scene? How long did it take? How many times did they do, do that opening shot? It was the Stanley Studios in um, in Boreham Wood, and they'd converted a downstairs basement into the set. So it was all quite claustrophobic. Um, the uh, the tables, the milk machines, the, those beautiful sculptures, absolutely works of art, wonderful. Um, uh, we had, again, several changes of cast because uh, some of them couldn't quite get on what Stanley wanted. Uh, wonderful singer, should know her name, that's terrible. Gay Brown. Gay Brown, absolutely superb. Um, and uh, yeah, it was. Um, we spent a lot of time down there on it. Certainly, uh, there wasn't too much you could do because you were restricted in space. Uh, I do remember that uh, one stage, um, Stanley told me um, that the the milk was a drug that they're yeah. coming up machines, and uh, so I tried to uh, uh, input 
some sort of drug related reactions as I'm sitting there, but I'm afraid it upstaged the whole scene. So he <laughs> said, Mr. Tarn, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> Those are his words. Those are his words. Uh, I said, I'm acting, Stanley, I'm acting. So Mr. Tarn, don't act. So I presume, I presume you, you were trying to act like you were out of it, were you? That's it, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I've been practising for months in the GCSE exam, so, I'm, you know, <laughs> I thought, pass master. I suppose while you were in that set, you'd have probably filmed all the, I think you got to the, the Karova three times in the film, in the finished film, so I suppose you filmed all them back yeah. to back. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so you'd have been yeah. there yeah. a while. I mean, mostly, unfortunately, I was um, that Malcolm would enter, Warren would enter, I would enter, and then James would enter. And I was always stuck behind Warren. Well, that's like sitting in the worst cinema seat ever. <laughs> yeah. And he had the biggest hat as well, I think, didn't he? <laughs> uh, so, uh, and I believe that, I believe that set was one of, only two sets that were built. Everything else was on a real location, just with set set dressing. Uh, but that was actually built. Yeah. As was, I think, the entr the entrance to the uh, Alexander's home. I think that was a, a, the other. To the house, yeah, which was just a little box, cam, you know, cabin sort of thing, just stuck on his front door. Yeah. Not very sophisticated. So, what was it like working with uh, Malcolm Warren and James? You know, what was the uh, um, was it was a good camaraderie, or did you keep yourself to yourself? We started at Thamesmead, and that was the um, the walk along on the lake. So yeah, we were. I think we were pretty close there. But as it went further in, and Malcolm was more into other areas of the film, then of course we didn't get the um, togetherness. Mm. I was um, in a caravan with James, and Warren shared, believe it or not, with Malcolm. Yeah. So um, very much, I think that pairing kept itself. I think they were all buddies, weren't they, Malcolm and Warren? Ma they Malcolm, were. Yeah, Mal Malcolm, yeah. Malcolm told us that he re he um, suggested Warren to to Stanley because they'd worked together before, I believe. Yeah. Well, you, you, did you ask Malcolm why Michael Tarr was part of the crew? I didn't know because I didn't think he did. Oh, right. I, I thought he'd have less idea than you than you did. Well, I think he was very key in the casting. Obviously, he was very um, close to Malcolm, uh, to Stanley, uh, which is sad to think that come the last day of filming, Stanley actually cut himself off from all of us. Mm. You couldn't talk to him. Yeah, you had to go through uh, and Andreas. I think he's um, Andros. Yeah, 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 Andros. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you never had another word with Stanley uh, after that. Not even say, I, you know, thank you or whatever. And I think the same, it was the same with Malcolm. So. He seemed to be very all business, did Stanley. If he, if he had to use his time talking, he wanted it to be something that's going to move things forward. It tended to be yeah. very, you know, very, yeah. bus very business-like in, uh, in how he dealt with people. Um, yeah. Oh yes, right. So I've heard that Malcolm McDowell uh, has said at some point that he that he would sometimes play tricks on you. Is this the case? Is that? I was a target. I was definitely a target. Um, the big one was the 
my only close up of anything when I was at Thamesmead running up the hill yeah um, or up the steps um, when Malcolm turns around pushes the other two into the lake he turns to me and I'm supposed to run well you're talking about half a mile from there to the end of the lake so Stanley said I just want you to run Mr Tyrone just just keep running just keep running okay um and um, Malcolm would go further further <laughs> and I mean I would run on the first two right to the end of the lake and I'd come back and he'd say Stanley I think we should do that again just the shot of Mr Tarn running so I sort of tweaked finally but what do you do what do you do I always remember um, I did a film called Alfred the Great with um, David Hemmings, played a young Saxon boy. We were in the marshes in the middle of a bog in Ireland. They've asked us to go into the bog, this little group of Saxons. So there's me and a, an actor called Julian Glover, who's oh, about yeah. nine foot. Yeah. yeah. So I'm with Julian there. And what they've done is they've put some wickerwork shields under the bog to make sure we didn't sink down. So I'm there up to my shoulders. Julian Glover's up to his waist. David Hemmings comes along and says, what's that? Clive Donner, the director, says, just jump in next to Julian and we'll do the, sh do the shot. Fine. David looks at him and says, ah, it's not too deep, is it? Julian says, no. Nah. David jumps in and disappears. Goes <laughs> over his head. So, what do you do? You've got to do what the director says. Sure, yeah. And I mean, that 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 was kind of one of the first days on set. He was a young man. It's probably yeah, probably the biggest film you'd been on. Uh, so I'd imagine if you were told and, to run, and Stanley had laid down a marker. Stanley had actually been hiring and firing different technical people all through that period. Right. So I think. By the time we got to Derek Cracknell, uh, we were on our fourth first assistant. Wow. Yeah. And um, and even, I think, Dusty Simmons was ended up final. And, uh, you know, he, did, he didn't take rubbish from anyone. If anyone turned around and said, can't do that, Stanley, he'd say, well, you're not going to do it then. <laughs> Bye. Mm. So there was always a tension there. You never knew what Stanley was thinking, whether... Stanley was going to say, I've had enough of you, bye. And so you certainly wouldn't turn around to Stanley or Malcolm, who was also, I'm sure, on edge with Stanley. He never knew, right? No, no. Just do what he says. Just do what he says. So it kept me fit. I have a question yes. about that scene. Yeah. I have a question about the marina scene. Yeah. Because um, I'm looking at it right now. Me and somebody else were talking about this recently. Uh, he kicks James is the actor's name is the uh... James Marcus yeah okay so he kicks him Malcolm kicks him into you know he he ends up falling in the river or the lake yeah. and yeah. Um, then the, it cuts to the kind of slow motion shot of him you know falling through the air and the yeah. the water is so still that it looks like glass at that moment. But moments before, there was rippling in the water from the from wind, which is natural. So me and someone was talking, somebody else were talking about this, and we said, "I bet he he just made everybody wait till the wind went away because he wanted it to look perfectly still." So that's just speculation on my part. Is there anything no. to that? 
the the reason was uh, why we had such long waits between the scenes were because once the actors had done it once, Jimmy and Warren, they then had to go off to somebody's house to go and have a bath, <laughs> clean themselves up to get dry costumes and then come back. So oh, wow. a simple scene would it take, it, it took, it took, I think, I think it took three or four days. Wow. And the, the guy whose house he used, um, let's say the average wage then was maybe, I don't know, for three pounds a day in England. And they were paying him five pounds a bath. <laughs> he wow. was minted. Uh, I mean, the sad thing is that uh, they're trying to regenerate Thamesmead now, but um, it did go downhill. It was supposed to be a town of the future with all this brutal architecture and concrete and everything. Um, but uh, sadly, it went downhill for many years and became a real place you didn't visit. But uh, they're trying to regenerate it now because the lake was such a big asset for the area. But um, so was the unemployment, sadly. So that, so in that scene, Mag, this is towards the end of the scene, we've got a really good shot of you kind of going sideways in slow motion. Yeah. Can, you, can you tell us about That's that? The only time Stanley ever turned around and said, well done, Mr. Tarn. Right. He, he made a big feature of it. So, uh, no, that was very nice of him and uh, the crew. It wasn't easy because they were three-foot-high steps. What, what a scene that is. Oh, yeah. You must be yeah. so you must be so proud to be in a, well the, the whole film of course but I mean that scene is a scene that is played regularly in compilations and what is well scene. it's it's got the whole um, two thousand and one parody to it doesn't it the knife and um, you know yeah, he, he looks like the Moonwalker Louise hunched over yeah yeah and 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 the and the concrete um, tower blocks. Very synonymous of the the monoliths. Yeah, yeah. The first scene, according to some of the call sheets I've seen, the first scene that was shot in September yeah. 19, September nineteen seventy was in yeah. a, in a, in the Duke of New York pub. Uh, that's the, the the name. Yeah. In the film. Yeah, we have got a film. Um, the scene that they, they did film on that first day, it didn't actually make it into the final film, but I believe it was shot and not filmed. And it's a scene where the droogs are buying drinks for three old ladies uh, in order to, to kind of bribe them not to tell the police. Yeah. To tell the police that the, oh, the, lad, the droogs have been in here all night. They haven't been out there robbing and pillaging. Uh, so can you remember shooting that scene that was on this call sheet? Or I so? do. It was a very weak scene. It's a very weak scene in the book. The problem was that the book was the script, the lines. Yeah. You know, it wasn't sent away to, um, you know, uh, William Goldman or someone to create a script from a film script. Uh, Stanley li literally just took the lines from the, the book. There was a lot more um, of the, the Russian language -y sort of thing um, in the book, which we didn't use. But I remember that scene. It just didn't work. The, the lines were too thin. Yeah. So we, we actually tried filmed that scene in two or three different locations we we filmed it in a workman's hut we filmed it in a car park um just to try to find something that worked with it but um right. you know, difficult no mm, that's interesting and the other uh, the other scene which i think a lot of people know about another scene that 
was shot but not used is um, outside, uh, I think it was shot in Freya Square in Aylesborough and it's uh, where a schoolmaster is coming out, uh, he's heading home from the lab with books under his arm uh, and the dudes yeah. attack him and tear up his books. Um, that was now, a good scene. Yeah. That was a good scene. Right. And uh, sadly, the actor died, got his clogs. Mm. So they couldn't use it. But, um, yeah, that was one of the few where we all got together as a group and decided what we were going to do and how we were going to do it. And Stanley was quite buzzy on that when we were doing it. Um, in between takes, we'd go off to the bowling alley where Malcolm showed that he was not a 10-pin bowler in any shape or form. <laughs> where my famous uh, claim to fame is where I bought um, Stanley a hot dog. He was feeling peckish and he saw me eating a hot dog. And he came and said, Mr. Time. Would you get me one of those? <laughs> wow. Yeah, of course, Stanley. And, and I never, I don't have any money. So, Stanley, I don't have any money. <laughs> we had to fish in his pockets for some money. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask you about the, um, the lobby of, of the housing unit of the apartment block? Yeah, I mean, that, that, was, that was the first scene... Funny enough, before we went to Henry, that was the very first scene that we filmed, and that had most of what the Droogs were all about in those scenes. So the, por so, the pornography, the, the graffiti that was kind of porn pornographic on the wall, was that all there on, on day one? No, no, he, they gave us some chalk and everything. Oh, said, really? Start, yeah, start decorating the walls, guys. That's what I was hoping you said. <laughs> That's so funny. And uh, we just wondered how far we could go with it. Um, yeah. It's all very tame now, but then, you know, you thought, oh, but um, I, I think he did bring in uh, some uh, art guys afterwards to maybe tart it up. But all the yard blockos and all that sort of thing, that's all us doing our graffiti. Quite funny when you when you, you know, freeze frame some of the scenes. <laughs> it, it was hard to know how far to go without being totally crude. But um, yeah, no, it was that in those early days uh, where we were still working on costumes and character and everything that uh, <clears throat> it came along at, at exactly the right time for that. That was the uh, the university. Brunel. Brunel University. Yeah. Fairly early on in the film, there's another scene. Uh, I, I, be I, I believe this was. Not in the book, not in the script, but I think because the uh, the previous scene with the with the library guy getting beat up and and, and that didn't work out. Stanley knew during filming that wasn't going to work out because the the actor died, so couldn't complete the the whole thing. Yeah. Um, so he, I believe, the, the next scene that was filmed was the uh, the drugs meeting the drunken singing tramp in the subway. I think that was kind of just brought up pretty quickly that idea, and it turned out to be a fantastic scene again. Spare some cutter, me brothers. <laughs> Go on, do me and you bastard cowards. We don't want to live anyway. Not in a stinking water like this. Oh? And what's so stinking about it? It's a stinky world because there's no law and order anymore. It's a stinky world because it lets the young get onto the old. Like you, God. Oh, it's no 
quarters for an old man any longer. Hot shock of our world is it at all. Men on the moon and men spinning around the earth and there's not no attention paid to earthly law and order no more. Oh, oh dear the land, I fought for thee and uh, and that was in in a, a real underpass in Wandsworth, uh, which I tried yep. to vi- I tried to visit there a couple of years ago, and it was just I, I got there, made a bit of effort to get there, I walked many miles, and it was all sealed off because they were painting it. Couldn't get in there. How often do they paint right. it? Right. Anyway, anyway, that was just unlucky. So can you tell us? Can you tell us about filming that scene? Another great scene. Well, that's a, a night scene. So um, uh, I, I went to school during the day drama school and everything I used to come back for night around about four or five o'clock and it was miserable and the thing about London then and we came across it was um, you cannot film a crime in London or or you couldn't film a crime in London um, without you know permissions or whatever and they didn't have the permissions Mm. And uh, we kept having to stop filming to, um, for some reason, for because the neighbours or the people who lived around there were complaining that there was a crime happening. And uh, that was uh, very strange because I thought, you know, a film, big name, blah, 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 you'd have all that in place. But no, it, it was a stop and start procedure. Um it was also, I think, uh, the first bonding scene, if you like, where we could actually create a little bit of mayhem. And I thought the uh, the old guy who played the uh, the drunk was terrific. Um, he took whatever punishment he was told to receive, which was brilliant. <laughs> he just lay there and just said, kick me, hit me, poke me, beat me. So, you know. <laughs> so they, they didn't swap him over, uh, they didn't bring a stuntman no, in for, for those no, beats? It was in, they wrapped him all up, padded him up, and and off we went. Wow, that's commitment. <laughs> that's brilliant. So did, did, did the police turn up then on, during that? They did, several times, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But um, what are you doing? Oh, it's only a dialogue scene. Oh, okay then. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And was that was that a couple of nights, or did you manage to get it all done so. one night? I vaguely remember that um, some yobbos or something actually started to take pot shots at the at the at the lights and everything. All right, thing, you know. So uh, it was it was quite fraught. Certainly didn't like you know, or enjoy walking back from the uh, the location to your caravan. I remember that being a bit. You know, not the sort of place you want to walk around at night. No, and I bet that the light that you just mentioned, I bet that was a very, very big, strong one because you, you, you don't was. obviously you don't see the light in shot, but you can see the light, the actual light it's giving out, yeah. it's light up in in there. Yeah. So I, I suppose when you're out, when you're out of the subway and surrounding areas, you could, at night it's going to be very bright, isn't it? So that's going to attract the attention if nothing else. Yeah. It's a great kick for the actor to be walking in silhouette and you can see your shadow. Yeah. Brilliant. Fantastic. Yeah. 
Um, I, I, you did an interview many years ago around the late 90s uh, for Italian television, and I've recently seen a, a clip of it, and you said that there's a certain amount of fear on a Stanley Kubrick set. Is that what you were talking about when, because he doesn't put up with technicians who can't do the job? Is that what you meant by Yeah, that? you don't relax on Stanley sets. You don't relax. You're not relaxed. It's not um, uh, a totally brilliant creative um, idea, but then you're you're just adding to what Stanley wants rather than creating something which you know you think is yours. Um, uh, the only time it really broke from the mold, I believe, is when we were in the house, in the Alexander house, and suddenly within that space, um, the ideas kept coming thick and fast. You know, which was brilliant. Right, Pete, check the rest of the house. Dead. Uh, you'll hear very uh, a lot of different versions of how singing in the rain came about. But I was annoying the sound man tremendously during the things when he was trying to find the balance because I kept trying to practice my tap dance routines that I was going to do in my Christmas show. And these were wooden floors. And so I'd be sitting there tapping away. Shh, Mr. Torrent, please. Don't do it. Don't do it. And through them taking the mickey out of me doing song and dance, it developed into, why don't we turn it into a musical? Yeah. Wow. And why don't we, do, well, sing in the rain. So it was all part of um, a general just banter session. And um, Stanley just came back after a few hours and said, we've got the rights. And we went, oh, what, we're going to go with it? Yeah. So that was the only time compared it with something like <clears throat> the Billy Boy fight, which was choreographed, staged and everything. The actual Alexander House was improvised mm. initially. So, you know, um, that was pre-Christmas. Anything after Christmas suddenly became a different um, feeling on set. So I would say first three months were very creative the, the second set were very stanley yeah which which i guess he went away and had a few days break and then started realizing that he needed to get, finish it get it finished <laughs> yeah and, and yeah, yeah and just crack on you mentioned the billy boy scene um did 
I mean, most of the most of the shots we see of the Droogs, it's certainly yeah. you guys. It's certainly you guys. It's, it's, whether it's, it whether it's, did you have stunt doubles at all on that no. in that scene? No, 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 no not, not at all. Roy Scammell, who was heading these thing, really wanted us to be all doubled at all times because of the nature of whatever. But the, no, there was no point. We were all young, you know, mm-hmm. we're all fit. Chip oil! Come and get one in the yarbles! If you have any yarbles, your eunuch jelly thou! Let's get her, boys! There were accidents which happened. I remember they gave me uh, a, my stick. Um, I had to hit one of the Billy Boys gang with. So they wrapped him up, padded him up, and they said, okay, Mr. Tarn, just start hitting him. And as I'm hitting him, the stick is bending into a U shape. <laughs> and I I said, what is this? And the poor guy's black and blue with things. And they, they said, well, they put a metal rod and covered it in sponge. <laughs> they said, it's sponge. I said, it's metal. <laughs> it's bending. Sponge doesn't bend. <laughs> I thought it was a specially constructed prop. Was hitting with and poor lad was getting a beating. And um, I, I, uh, believe, I believe that quite a few members of Billy Boy's gang were stuntmen. I, I think they I, were. They were all stuntmen. Yeah. We, we, so I suppose at least le- who's a very well-known stuntman, sadly uh, did a high fall onto a snooker table and broke his back. Who was that? Martin Grace, right. super stunt, really nice bloke. In in Clockwork Orange, yeah, yeah, yeah. It broke his back in Clockwork Orange. I believe so. He certainly. I went to visit him in hospital. Right. Oh. Um, yeah, yeah. He was. Uh, he certainly had a hell of a whack on it. So uh, Roy Scammell just passed away a few weeks ago, I think. Did he? Yeah. Ah, oh, I, I mean, that, I guess he must have been in his eighties. He was also he did some work on Full Metal Jacket, uncredited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Roy got on with Stanley. Mm-hmm. Roy was a very live wire, very, um, very influential in the uh, British stunt industry at that time. Uh, beautiful daughter Karen, he did a balancing act with, and um, no, oh, no, yeah. no, no. Uh, he was eighty-eight. Oh well, it's a good life, isn't it? Okay, so uh, so the next scene in the book and the script is where the yeah. the, the Droogs have escaped from the 
Um, after the Billy Boy fight, they, we hear the police sirens and the droogs run. Uh, yeah. There was a scene straight after that. I don't know whether it was shot straight after that, but we're supposed to follow that, where the droogs are staring up at the stars and talking about how great the world is. I believe that was filmed, but not ultimately. It was. It's a super scene. We love that scene surrounded by all those millionaires' cars and et cetera, all the fantastic cars, the Durangos and the Lamborghinis. Uh, filmed in Pimlico in Victoria. I don't know why it didn't make the, the last scene. It sort of echoed, funnily enough, because um, I was reading The Lord of the Rings at the time, and it was sort of um, almost parodied or paralleled um, Sam looking up at the sky in Mordor. Yeah, and saying, did it. Oh, and there was Dim doing almost exactly the same thing in the in the car park. <laughs> so that's uh, the, the car park where you filmed that is uh, the same car park where you stole the Durango 95 from. Is that right? I don't think you actually see us steal the Durango. Yeah, you, 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 no, you don't see it in the film. Uh, no, I, I so it's suggested rather than fact. But I suppose it's supposed to be, yeah. Very possibly. Mm. And just before you, uh, just before the drugs arrive at, at the house, in, the home invasion, um, in the book, the drugs pull over at the side of the road just before they get to the house and see a, yeah. young, a young couple and they jump out and beat them up. That's in the book, not filmed. No, no, no. 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 It, was, it, was, it was slowing down the action too much. It was, yeah. it, it's, then it became bang, 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 bang. I think having set the tempo, a fast tempo in so many scenes, Stanley didn't want anything to slow it down. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So much has happened so far, and we're only nine minutes into the film, and we and we come to the home invasion scene. I mean, we've just been yeah. on a, a roller coaster ride from the from the min, from the first minute. Uh, so the home yeah. invasion scene, probably the most talked about scene in the film. Uh, the droogs enter the house, and Alex says, "Pete, check the rest of the house," which you do. Uh, we don't see you again in this scene, and the other three droogs go on and, and play the, the parts in that scene. Why, uh, why were you not in the main part of the scene? But sent to uh, initially, I went in, um, and he said, after I'm jumping all over the furniture, check the kitchen or something. I can't remember what he says, Pete. So I go out, and I kick the door open to the kitchen, only my foot went through it, which sent the, um, the money man apoplectic, and he went to stand. He said, this is the guy's house. You can't destroy it. And we were very much of a mind that, it was a film set, not anybody's house. And that if we were going to do things, we were going to do things. And we had to be very careful on later takes that we didn't accidentally mark the furniture. Or So we found that quite bizarre. But the character goes out. There was a suggestion um, that he went out and somewhere along the line, I don't know where it came from, that um, there was possibly a, a daughter somewhere in the in the scenario and pete goes and does the nasty on her while the others are doing the nasty with the mum and dad but right. i don't think that that was never picked up or explored right um but i was out the second reason was that when they started all the stuff i was there watching which pete tended to do and um she was not alone in this 
Adrian was about the third person. Adrian Curry was the third actress, I think, who actually came to try to play the part that the other two didn't want to do anything like what Stanley was suggesting. And so they were replaced. Finally, Adrian Curry, well-known actress, came in. And the first thing she said when during film, she said, sorry, Stanley, but Mike reminds me of my son. I can't do this. And so I think I was asked to gently retreat off the set. Yeah, I mean, you were very young. Uh, and, it, and if Stanley was thinking responsibly, he might have thought, look, you know, 15, 16 year old lad seeing all that. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Very possibly, but I think um, that was very much... And, and to be honest, I wasn't... Then, I wasn't totally upset. So, of course, I understand. Yeah, that's fine. I'm, mm. you know, I'm happy with that. Yeah, but, but I still... I, I saw most of the filming. Still then, most of the filming and um, the creative process and everything. And um, whether they had enough duct tape to take Malcolm's penis so that we couldn't see it. Oh, yes, when he jumps down and his shirt flaps open. Yeah. Yeah, when it, yeah, right. I wonder how they'd achieve that. <laughs> About uh, a while back, a while ago, we interviewed a lady called Shirley Jaffe. Are you? Do you know Shirley Jaffe? She played a very small role in Clockwork. She she brought the hypodermic needle in to the doctor to inject into Malcolm. So she's only in it very briefly. But it was I actually never met her. well, it was actually uh, her house. Her and her husband Tony's house, where the you filmed the rape scene. So that's who owned the house. A lovely uh, couple called oh, right. Sh- Shirley and Shirley and T- Tony Jaffe, um, and uh, all the lovely furniture. house, terrific yeah, house. Yeah, a place called um, it's called Skybreak. Uh, it's in Radlett, yeah. which, which obviously you know. Radlett. So anyway, yeah. So that, so Shirley said that um, she was originally asked to rent out the house to Stanley for I think she said two weeks. It ended up being ten. <laughs> it was ten weeks. So she, yeah. her and Tony and the two children and uh, uh, stayed in a hotel for ten weeks, and they really enjoyed the hotel. And the only one complaint they had when they returned is the floor was quite scuffed. But apart from that, there was no damage. <laughs> well, there was the, the one of the doors had to be replaced. I remember that because I put my foot right through it. Um, the other thing was that we had a big marquee in their garden, which is where we had our meals and everything like that. And it was freezing cold that winter. And we actually literally kept everybody going on. We need a heater. We need a heater. And this was to the production. Um, Graham, don't remember. Anyway, and they actually took a, a couple of weeks before they actually even put a heater in there. It was miserable. It was freezing. <laughs> I remember that. Um, but the house itself was super. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm pleased we didn't do too much damage. Lovely house. Yeah. Especially when Malcolm pulled down the uh, bookcases. Yes. Yeah. They, they do seem like really uh, low-budget productions when I hear stories like that about not putting a heater in the tent. They're not particularly low-budget. You know, there's millions, there's a few million involved with even these sites. But I think, yeah. got, I think Stanley was a producer, wasn't it? And Because he had so many decisions, directorial decisions to make, he probably didn't always make the best producer decisions <laughs> all the time. It, I mean, what, what a I job. I don't understand why this wasn't a big money, big Hollywood film, as everyone kept telling me it was. It did feel like an average English film that was being made around that time, you know, with um, a, a tight budget. But obviously it wasn't a tight budget because he kept discarding 
weeks of work. Yeah, yeah. And he threw a camera out the window for one shot, didn't he? Bought a camera and just threw it out the window. Yeah, for for, for Alex's uh, suicide yeah. attempt. Well, yeah. do, do you know who actually went on the roof and threw that camera off? Dave no. Prow- Dave Prowse. Uh, he, he, tell, he tells us the story, yeah, that uh, yeah. Stan- Stanley yeah. one day said, you can go up onto that roof, can't you? He says, well, yeah. I, probably, I probably could. So he went up and he was the only person who, well, I don't, I don't <laughs> know if it was heavy or what, this camera, but he actually threw it off, yeah. <laughs> really? I know. So an reflex, wasn't it? I'm not sure what that was, yeah. I yeah, know, yeah. know how reflexes were used, yeah. So you knew Dave, Dave did you? He, he sadly passed, I think, last year, didn't he? I know. I know. He was yeah. a great family friend, so I knew him very well. Mm. Yeah. And that's a, that's a great role for him as Julian in A Clockwork Orange. <laughs> the, the, fans, uh, the fans love it. Love that. Uh, love yeah. Julian. Dry the wine. I love that. Yeah. Yes. Food, all right. <laughs> Uh, do you remember uh, meeting Pat Roach on the set of Clockwork Orange? Yeah, I knew Pat as well. Pat was a stuntman. Yeah. I've met Pat a few times. Yeah. yeah. My father, whose name was Reuben Martin, or Rube Martin, was one of their generation of stuntmen. Right. So what did your father work on? Well, it had been in the 50s and 60s. Oh, no, sorry. later. 60s he and 70s. Clockwork Orange. <clears throat> Excuse me. He came to um, Beaconsfield and filmed... One of the um, Malcolm's scenes at um, the Hellfire Caves in Beaconsfield, and he met Stanley. And Stanley went up and said, um, uh, "Oh, uh, what did he say? Uh, you're Michael Tarn's father." And my dad said, "Well, actually, my name's Rude Martin." <laughs> sort of thing and uh, he, he was quite miffed when they got home that night and said I used to be my own person now I'm just Michael Tarn's father <laughs> so well what were the scenes at the Hellfire Caves that, that rings a bell the Hellfire Caves uh, well, no they, they have um, a semi-classical sort of mini coliseum at the top of the hill in Beaconsfield and they filmed some scenes up there from Malcolm's uh, oh, from his biblical fantasy. Yeah, that's right. Yes, yeah. with with the with the Roman uh, the Roman yeah. battle. I read all about the scourging and the crowning with thorns, and I could vidy myself helping in and even taking charge of the tolchocking and the nailing in, being dressed in the height of Roman fashion. I didn't so much like the latter part of the book, which is more like all preachy talking than fighting in the old in-out. I like the parts where these old Yehudis tolchock each other and then drink their Hebrew vino and getting onto the bed with their wives' handmaidens. That kept me going. Stanley loved actors. Mm. He really did. And, um, you know, if, if you gave him what you wanted or, or something, I think he was very appreciative. And I think he particularly liked older English actors. Mm. Yeah, because he did work with a hell of a lot of English actors, didn't he? Considering yeah. it was American 
Some of, I mean, yeah. Clockwork, Clockwork Orange just feels like a totally British film. It doesn't feel like any American influence in that movie whatsoever. It's just, it's obviously like no other British film ever, that's ever been made, but it really does feel oh. f- like a familiar, cracking early 70s British film. You know, where you've got Michael Bates popping yeah. up, things like that. Yeah. yeah. What, a, what a film. Overacting like mad. <laughs> Did um did Kubrick give you any backstory um as far as Pete goes? Or is that was that probably there was nothing there, nothing to give. We worked no. that out in the first week in his house. There was nothing, so he said, you know, you just work together, and you know, we were only in the first part of the film, you know, mm. and it was very episodic. I know that Warren and Jimmy come back at the end as policemen. Um, without a haircut, <laughs> but um, you know, it's um, we didn't realise then that we were going to be involved for such a long. Because if you'd have filmed it scene by scene from the beginning, we'd have been finished at the end of the second week. Yeah, yeah. So, <clears throat> um, in hindsight, in hindsight. Um, I don't know what else could Stanley could have done except just do our scenes first. Yeah. And then he had all the rest of the time to explore those other avenues of the treatment, the Ludovico treatment and all that sort of thing. Mm. Um, I'm not sure personally that the whole film worked. I'm not sure. I think technically it's incredible. I think visually it's incredible, but as a story, I don't know. It, it seems um, it seems as short and as thin as the book. Yeah, for me, there's no mm. huge depth. But um, well, no, it's a very straightforward story. Very straightforward. There's nothing much to it, and it is the actual the the, the presentation of of every scene in that film that makes it so watchable. But yeah, yeah. there's not there's not much of a story to it, really, is there? No, no. A bad boy gets locked up, goes through some treatment, and then the end is a little bit ambiguous, you know. Uh, did he did he become a good boy or not? But we don't need to know that. Watching the film is what you're yeah. interested in. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a good point that uh, there's not much there's not much story to it. It is quite a thin story. But yet, yeah, my favourite Kubrick film. So I must like the simple things in life. <laughs> <laughs> It is, right. yes. I yeah. love Barry Lyndon. I was very uh, taken with Barry Lyndon. I thought so. the tour of Irish stately homes. Mm. And that was a direct follow-up to Clockwork and couldn't have been more different. I had not cut into any of Dim's main cables. And so, with the help of a clean tashtuk, the red, red crewvie soon stopped. And it did not take long to quieten the two wounded soldiers down in the snug of the Duke of New York. Now they knew who was master and leader. Sheep, thought I. But a real leader knows always when like to give and show generous to his unders. Well, as Alex had not cut into any of Dim's main cables, the droogs reassemble in the Duke of New York to plan the next evening of mayhem. So you've got you and Malcolm on one side of the table, James and Warren facing. Can you remember filming that scene? Yeah, it was a very, very simple scene, very low-key. Just sat there and went, right, 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 right. Yeah, 
not too much depth to it. Now we're back to where we were. Yes? Just like before and all forgotten? Right, right, right. 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 Well, Georgie boy, this idea of yours for tonight. Tell us all about it then. Not tonight. Not this, Notchy. <laughs> come, 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 Georgie boy. You're a big, strong Chelovec like us all. <laughs> We're not little children, are we, Georgie boy? What then didst thou in thy mind have? It's this health farm. A bit out of the town. Isolated. It's owned by this, like, very rich patitza who lives here with her cats. The place is shut down for a week and she's completely on her own. And it's full up with, like, gold and silver and, like, jewels. Tell me more, Georgie boy. Tell me more. Nothing memorable uh, during that scene. That's cool. Not really. Um, it was almost um, literally, oh, we're here. Let's film it. Let's go. We might have um, tried to film the three ladies on that on that same afternoon. Yeah, possibly, because I suppose while you were in that particular pub, you'd probably have done yeah, the, the same scenes in that location. Uh, it's quite an unusual pub in, inside. It's like a Swiss tavern or something, isn't it? Leather bottle, wasn't it? The leather bottle. That's right. I remember right. it. Yeah. Yeah. Very, uh, very Bernie in. Super Bernie in. Right. Yes, Bernie. I remember those vaguely. I think they were gone by the eighties, weren't they, Bernies? Yeah. Yeah. Your parents probably told you about them. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the three droogs wait for Alex outside the cat lady's house and Dim smashes Alex yep. in the face with a milk bottle. Originally, yep. Alex was chained in the eyes by, was chained because he always carried a chain around his uh, waist. Yep. Can, you, can you remember much about that scene with the, with the bottle smashing in the face? It, that was a night um, scene, yeah, I presume. Um, all different ways of um, creeping up to the house, trying to gain entrance into the house. Um, standing side by side on the either side of the uh, thing. It was cold. It was always cold. I can't remember one warm day on the whole shoot. You can actually see the breaths in those oh. in, the, in those particular yeah. scenes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, it felt a good scene. I remember but we, we did the scene and we thought that's because that was the last time we were going to film together apart from the car scene. So this was our last exterior scene and uh, i remember that we yeah uh, it was relaxed i remember it was relaxed we were talking we you know we'd, we'd reverted back to how we'd been in previous um locations and uh, you know uh, we all had a, a fair share of input etc so yeah uh, it was a nice scene to finish the exteriors with and I think and that's... it wasn't too far from Stanley's house. Yes, as usual, yes. I believe uh, he never travelled too far, did he? Well, we had bizarre situations, especially when we were filming the Billy Boy scene in Hampton. 
on Thames, uh, the fight scene, where Stanley would go home, go down the motorway, but nobody is allowed to overtake Stanley on the motorway, and he'd go 50 miles an hour at the very worst. And there would be a whole, whole stream of cars behind Stanley. <laughs> and we'd go, oh, come on, we want to go home, we want to get home. You daren't pass Stanley in your car. Is that because the next day he would come over to you and say you were going too fast? Is, is that why everyone kept back? Because slightly more than that, especially for the drivers. They wouldn't be driving the next day, I'm sure. Wow. Mm. So, right, so, yeah. So we know he didn't like speed on the roads. We've heard those tales many times. But he, yeah. uh, he, he, has, he absolutely wanted everyone to go slow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. Never overtakes Stanley. So, in fact, that was probably the last scene of all the Drews together in the film. Anyway, I think that's the final scene we see you all together. Kind of becomes Mal- uh, Alex's story from there, doesn't it? Um, yeah. W- was there any talk of bringing uh, Pete back at any point in the latter half of the film? Ne- never mentioned. No. I was so young and I looked so young, and the thing was that um, I got younger as they all aged visibly, and uh, you could see that. I mean, I, I think um, Warren's waistline slightly increased by the end of the film. Um, uh, Jimmy was, I, th- I think Jimmy might've been the eldest. I don't know. But again, there was such a marked age difference between us. I'd never got away with being a policeman. No, no that's true. You know, why? Uh, I, it always crossed my mind. Uh, but Stanley kept me in the loop right up until Christmas after Christmas, there was a definite dynamics change as Stanley started to get the pressure on him from the other side of things. And it is a directed medium, after all, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. What was the hardest and most difficult part of the movie for you personally? Uh, the hardest thing was keeping the concentration together. The longevity of it was... I'd. In my other life, as a stage school student, I was missing probably my biggest year. And I was personally <clears throat> really, I, I, I would have given it up probably at Christmas. My, I'd mentally set myself that I was going to be there for six weeks, which then meant I could go on and do my play. I could go on and do the television. I could do this, this, this and this. But in fact, it was all swept away. It was really beginning to affect the crew. It was beginning to affect us. We could see no end in sight because Stanley kept all his aces up his sleeve. He kept all his ideas to himself after Christmas. We didn't know where it was going. We watched the film um, on one of the uh, previews. And uh, and both has looked at each other, and, and the suggestion was that why had it taken so long? <laughs> because for us personally, the film was over after half an hour. So anyway, uh, it, it, it's what it was. It, it took as long as it did, um, but it certainly did compromise uh, sort of later things because we thought we'd just done a film albeit with Stanley, we'd done a film. We didn't know then that it was going to become the cult thing it 
was destined to become, I suppose. Yeah. Because there were other films that had a very bad press, and yet films like The Wild Bunch came out, which were very violent and, you know, later Straw Dogs. Yeah. Uh, and The so, Devils. Uh, absolutely. I mean, quite revolting films, some of them in some ways. Um, but Stanley lifted his take on that period uh, and those same themes uh, to a different level. Mm. So, you know, uh, brilliant, well done, because we hadn't seen anything like it. But uh, whether <laughs> the end justified the means, I don't know. It did take an awful long time out of our lives compared to things which we did afterwards. Mm. Never, ever was involved in another project that took so long. Yeah. So I think I, I, I probably know the answer to this next question, um, but I'll ask it anyway. How would you compare Kubrick with other directors you've worked with? Um, right. It's a game of two halves. Before Christmas and from when we first got together, it was terrific. It was fabulous. Input, discussion, improvisation, everything an actor would want. After Christmas, the dynamic changed and it just wasn't the same. It was get the movie done, get the movie done, get the movie done. Um, please, Stanley, do my scenes. <laughs> Let's finish it by the end of January. Then I can take the six months to do my exams, etc. But it didn't happen. It just dragged out and dragged out. So brilliant. The first six months, uh, first three months, brilliant. Uh, the second one was very hard work, very wearing mm. because I wasn't involved. Yeah. So to compare him with other directors, I suppose it's the fact that they got things done a lot quicker than Stanley. <laughs> right. That's that's the main thing I'm I'm guessing. Yes, I mean I, I did move on and did get my uh, subriquet of one take tarn in quite a few films after that and TV <laughs> things. Uh, can you can you tell us anything about Kubrick? We've covered. Is there anything, any other little story about Kubrick that we haven't really talked about? Anything that you can remember that we would find fascinating? Because we love hearing fascinating Kubrick stories. <laughs> I mean, uh, to be honest, uh, no. I, I was sent off to my caravan for long lengths of period. In fact, um, I think it was during the uh, Alexander scenes um, that I spent as much time playing Scrabble with Stanley's daughter Vivian than I did with filming on the set. And, uh, yeah, no. But the one thing that I came from Stanley or took from Stanley was what a great family man he is. His daughters, um, I think one was a stepdaughter, I'm not sure, but these daughters were terrific, very fun, very approachable. They're all, Stanley was a very good uh, family man, which to see some of the films that he brought out, you know, with the shining and everything, it almost belied his nature. So, uh, you know, no, uh, very, very honoured, mm. obviously, to yeah. have known him, to have worked with him, to have spoken one to one with him um, at such a young age. We finished filming. I had my 17th birthday at the Alexander House. Right. So um, that was nice. That was acknowledged. Um, I remember the um, Patrick, somebody or other, uh, was it a, a film critic? Alexander Walker. 
Ale- no, Alex, that's it, Alexander Walker. Yeah. And uh, he came on that day that was on my birthday and he was sort of discussing with Stanley about the film and doing an article. And I always remember him saying, oh, and um, tell me about the drugs. And Stanley said, well, we've got 16-year-old Mike, Mike Tyron here. And I went, 17, Stanley, today, <laughs> birthday, you know. And uh, so still 17 was below the age that you could go and watch the bloody thing. Ah, yes. So I had to see about the 91st preview after everyone had seen it, apart from the actors. I kept meeting people in Wardour Street saying, hey, great film, lovely. And I say, I haven't seen it. You know, it's like an afterthought. I said, can I go to the premiere? So I phoned up Andros. Uh, I'm like, no, 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 you're too young. So I had this bizarre thing where I had to take my family and friends uh, to see the preview. Right. But then Stanley obviously didn't stand on ceremony a lot of time. He didn't like pomp and circumstance, as far as I can tell. And um, uh, and I went with, um, I was doing pantomime the following year, which was great. Uh, even though I was still 17, just crept in, wasn't 18 yet. And I went with a lot of friends of my, uh, from the pantomime. And uh, they all looked at it and went out and it upset the older members. I always remember that the older ones came out and said, all this rape, all this violence, all that. Oh, no, I don't like that film at all. Whereas the people I was with and working with were all going, oh, good on you, Mike. You know, great thing. Super to have done it. So it divided opinion and split the family quite uh, uh, visibly. Um uh, I remember the first time I saw it, obviously with living in England and being born uh, in 1970, while the, yeah. just before the film was made. I didn't get, I didn't see it till the, uh, 1987-ish, when there was a, a video shop who had an under-the-counter dodgy copy of the film. I'd obviously read about it as a teenager, uh, so I finally got a copy of it, um, maybe 87, 88, and I. I loved it, watched it a lot. And one day I got, got this idea to watch it with my parents. And I hadn't considered the fact that that first 20 minutes or so is, yeah, really, is yeah. really hard, really hardcore. And I, yeah. I just didn't think about it. And I sat and watched the first 20 minutes with my parents and I don't think they were particularly impressed. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it, I, I, I'm just relating that to what you said about it dividing the... Yeah. Uh, the ages, yeah. really, yeah, it, it's, it was strong, and that that was in, that was twenty years later when I first saw it. Yeah, the music carried it in the first half. It took took you just enough away from all the uh, the mayhem and violence, and enough just for you to engage with the film. But I do think the the music helped soften the blow. Yeah, all that beautiful music. Uh, famously, Stanley withdrew the film from cinemas in the UK after 18 months. Um, uh, in the UK after 18 months, and ultimately kept it from home video release in the UK too, uh, until after his death. What do you remember about this at the time? So I think it did. 18, I think it did about 18 months um, in England. Yeah. yeah. Can, you, can you imagine? That, can you uh, remember the moment when it got w- withdrawn? I presume it was in the newspapers. I vaguely remember the newspaper reports that suddenly every gang 
that featured in any newspaper article. They blamed Clockwork Orange for being the inspiration. Yeah. So anything bad that happened, teenage related, suddenly it was uh, it was down to a Clockwork Orange. And Stanley obviously um, didn't like it that that was happening because the film for him was to highlight the Ludovico treatment as a way of suppressing violent tendencies or similar treatments yeah and not focusing on that first half hour yeah which everyone uh, did the the film almost peaked in the first half hour and then didn't quite hit the same sort of uh heights in the rest of it yeah that's that's really true yeah have you ever had the chance to be reacquainted with any of the cast or crew uh, since then, in the last 50 years? Um, yeah, um, because the British film industry is quite a small one, I've worked with all the, uh, all the uh, again, I work with most of the first directors, second directors. Um, uh, yeah, um, I had forays with them. Nothing of that scale, um, obviously. Uh, Jimmy, I didn't. Warren, I did. Um, yeah. We didn't really talk about it. It was it was a surprise. The the success of it was a surprise. And um, yeah, but it never worked on big roles after that. It gave me a good gateway. I mean, it gave all our careers a sort of boost. Um, but you couldn't say that the performances would excite casting directors, et cetera, et cetera. Warren was had a, the exception because he was such a character anyway. And, um, you know, he, he had a fabulous career building on that, but not necessarily from Clockwork Orange. His TV work um, was a, a huge platform. And I don't think he made... Did he make many more films? He made, he made, a, uh, he made All Lucky Man with Lindsay Anderson a couple of years after that. So it, it was re-teamed with Malcolm on All Lucky Man. Do, do you remember that one? 73, well, I think. Uh, did you know, uh, my mind's so bad, I thought that was before Clockwork Orange. He did If Before Clockwork Orange. Yes, That's yes. He did. Yeah, Malcolm. And then he did Oh Lucky Man. But that was part of the repertory. Lindsay Anderson had a repertory. Mike Lee has a repertory. Yeah, yeah. So, And, and Malcolm was a very big influence with uh, Lindsay. Mm. So I can understand that. But Warren was a character, well-deserving of his success. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy went and had, again, um, success on TV. I was always um, more... F- I didn't have a career, really. I was a stage school person who was entering my career. So the first thing I did was um, a play uh, with Peter Weller, which was called uh, Sticks and Bones. Peter Weller, and- the, the American actor? Yeah, 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 yeah. And that was a terrific play. Um, and, you know, hope, I had hoped to transfer to New York with that. Um, but again, I was just too young for whatever license was in at the time. Um, but that was a very good play. Uh, moved on from that. And I suppose after that, I, I did a whole series of TV films. Um, I'd never have got through the door without the Clockwork Orange Credit. CV. Mm. Credit on the CV. Um, and after that, I had a very good 10 years where uh, generally, yeah, I had good parts, good plays, TV, stage. So thank you, Stanley. 
When was the last time you acted and do you miss it? Um, it gave me up. I didn't give up. It gave me up because I was always younger than my years. Then at 30, I got fed up of playing teenagers. Yeah. It really, you know, so uh, 50-50 were choice and all that. But the last film I did was Shooters, directed by Colin Teague. He asked me to come back and do a few glares in the camera. And that was with, um, oh, so many of them. Ian McGriffith, whatever his name is, the Welsh actor. Um, Emily, whoever, a whole, whole range of, you know, good British actors. Gerard Butler. So that was in 2000, and I, I laid my hat up after that. Good, I had a nice film, good British, you know, lock, stock and two shooting barrel type film. Yeah. And uh, Colin, of course, went on to become, uh, uh, or has become a very good director in his own right. So, yeah. I'll look, I'll look out for that one. Yeah, it's called Shooters. Can't remember who the uh, two actors were. Glyn, someone, and Louis, Louis, Lewis. They've all made names for themselves. Yeah, yeah. Everyone got the same credit um, on the whole thing, even though it was. Um, uh, oh, who's who's the one from uh, Line of Duty? Aiden. Yes. Um... Adrian. Adrian Dunbar. Yes, Dunbar. Yes. Yeah. So we had Gerard Butler, Adrian Dunbar, and a supporting cast of good, good British names, good British actors. Mm. You were in something called 1990. Uh, that was a TV series with Edward Woodward. Yeah, that I gave it a try. See, I tried to uh, give that a go recently, but I didn't stick with it. It kind of <laughs> had a similar, some of the um, similar look to. Clockwork Orange, some of the scenes anyway. Um, yeah, I was in the very last episode where I was immolated in Trafalgar Square. So it was a, quite an exciting finale. But I, I hadn't watched the series before that. But it was a good, good and he was he was lovely, lovely to work with. Edward Woodward. Edward Woodward, Woodward, yeah. Yes. Very uh, good. Uh, my favourite Edward Woodward film is The Wicker Man. Love that film. Oh, yeah. Yeah, another cult film. Yeah, similar, similar time to Clockwork. I think it was 72, 73. Think, yeah, yeah, yeah another, yeah. yeah, another great film. So what year was 1990? What year was that? Uh, when did it come 70. out? What year? 78. 78, yeah. right, late 70s, yeah. Some some good TV yeah. in, in, the, in the 70s, some great TV. But they never had the budgets. No. And it was really frustrating having worked with Stanley to then go on to other films made, um, uh, Rise and Fall, and they just didn't have the budgets or the time to develop yeah. the storyline or the film. And you thought, oh, they could have done so much better if. Mm. But no, you had to accept what you had and then move on. Yeah. There seems to be quite a bit of uh, fallout from being on a Stanley Kubrick film as early on in your career. We spoke to a few people and, and we've heard people yeah. to tell us that if they, if they start on a Stanley Kubrick film or it's very early, they, they feel um, they, they feel the difference in a negative way because they haven't got the budgets, they haven't got the time. So they've almost been spoiled, which sounds really funny to say they've been spoiled on a Kubrick set when they go through quite a lot of uh, turmoil as well. Well, the biggest, biggest part I had was shortly after that, I think, I think it was after that, 
Um, the biggest part I had was um, playing a dinosaur in at the Earth's core. <laughs> Kevin, how did uh, were you in a costume and made to look yeah, big? The worst, one of the worst dinosaur films ever made because literally it was the end of an era. But uh, at least because my father, being the stuntman, was asked to organise it, and he's one of his stuntmen let him down. He said, "Mick, you've got to come along and help me out. We'll put you in a costume. No one will know you're there." <laughs> which, which, so, which film was that, Mike? At the Earth's Core. Yeah, I Connor with um, oh, can't remember the guy's name. He did two or three of the yeah, same. Yeah, the, the American, um, the American with Curly Shea. Um, it. it did like, oh, yeah, uh, whoa, 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 whoa. yeah. Kevin O'Connor. Kevin Connor was the director. Right. Superman, lovely man. Yeah, the actor, I quite liked him. He met, yeah, if, if I'm on the, the right lines, he did two or three films. Doug American. McClure. Doug McClure. Is it, who came up with that? That's did it. you just say that? Yeah, Doug McClure, brilliant. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so okay. that was my biggest part. Or went downhill. Now, I believe that you were offered, well, you were shown a script to a sequel to A Clockwork Orange, written by Bill Walker, the title of the, you've got the copy there, A Clockwork Testament. Now, you were sent to that some years ago, I don't know when exactly. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, that, the approach from Bill? It was sent to me on November the 18th, 2011. Oh, right, so fairly recent history. Yeah. In a nice box with stickers on it saying from Hollywood, Los Angeles, which impressed my drama students. And uh, I think he just needed some way to raise $50 million to do it. But a very nice man did a wonderful book for me. One of Let me oh, see that. What's in there? That's all the Clockwork Orange in pictures. Oh, right, yes, that's a massive version of this. I've got the little version. I've never seen, uh, the, big, I've never seen the big version. My one's bigger than yours, and it's in colour. <laughs> oh yeah, yours is in colour as well, Martin Blackwell. Yeah. Wow, that's yeah. rare. I mean, we're all clockwork. We're all Kubrick collectors. I've never seen that before. The, a big no. colour version. It's very nice. I think only five copies were made. I, I can and, believe uh, that. Very nicely, fortieth anniversary edition. Wow. Could you see that script being a film? What do you think of this? I don't yeah. want to ask you if it's a good script or a bad script, but could you see it working? Yes. No, I think it's um, not a bad attempt at following on however many years later it's supposed to follow on from, probably about 30 years later or something. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's quite interesting. I'm surprised that I haven't heard that it has developed further. Uh, you certainly invested a, a little bit in you know, trying to get it together. But uh, I would think that he'd hit a, a blank wall if he tried to uh, negotiate with Christiane or, yeah, I, I think that was probably the main stumbling block. And maybe the... Malcolm bird. would do it, I'm sure. You, th- you think Malcolm would do it? But then at that was 10 years ago, you see, so Malcolm would have had the energy to do something like that. Yeah. I don't know, in his 80s, is he in his 80s yet? 70, Late 70s. Has he just turned 77, I think? 77, 78, I mean, it's... I think. Yeah. He's about, about 10 or 11 years older than you, so yeah. that make him 77-ish. Yeah. 
So Pete had, a, I, I presume, Pete had a, a reasonable part in the, in the follow up. If, if he's sending sending you the script, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's but, a, it's a, it's a shame, but it was always a long shot. Yeah, he might have had a problem. I suppose he'd have needed permission from the Burgess estate as well, because uh, of the characters. They they were Burgess's characters, weren't they? Maybe, maybe I don't know. Can be a tricky yeah. business with remakes and things. Um, did you manage to keep hold of any of the costumes, props, or memorabilia from the shoot? No, it's very tight security, very tight. Sadly, sadly, not not a lot we could have taken and, or or had mementos of. Stanley didn't even release photographs of the film. You couldn't have a f- stills from your own scenes. I'll tell you, the one film that seems to be a never-ending supply of behind-the-scenes photographs is Full Metal Jacket, because mm. I'm, I'm quite in the scene of, with, the, with the collectors right. and the fans. They must right. have been, you know, from the, you know, I've had photos sent to me from just ex, extras and uh, background artists. Yeah. They seem, it seemed to be... I bet I've seen a thousand... Oh, as well as Matthew Mordeen's personal photographs that he took, it's this a lot. So I don't know why, but on that film, you know, you don't you can't find anything on any of his films other than official official uh, press right. shots. But Full Metal Jacket, yeah. there's, there's a lot going around. He must have just maybe uh, felt. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how it happened. Man, you might because everyone had small cameras in the later days and they could take them a lot easier. Well, they used to be little Minox spy camera, and um, I was off. I was um, offered quite a lot of money that. For by a journalist at that time, he said, "Oh, you're on that. How about if I give you, you know, a couple of hundred quid and you take some pictures?" And I said, "You're joking." I said, of course, I'm not going to. Um, but the that was the the level of security, the interest. Wow. So yeah, you, you, yeah, you weren't allowed to be on the wrong side of uh, Stanley uh, no. do, doing something like that. Grief. No. He was very pissed off because. Um, when they launched um, the the film to America, when they told um, the magazine, the Empire or whatever magazine it was, I can't remember, uh, and they released new Stanley Kubrick directs A Clockwork Orange by Anthony Burgess, starring Malcolm McDowell and Michael Tarn. It said that, did it? it well, it's a full page. And he came back and he said, who have you been talking to, Mike Tarn? Who have you? Who have you? I said, I haven't spoken to anyone, Stanley. It turned out that they just liked the sound of my name. But he did, he did talk to me for nearly about three or four days because he, he, he thought that I'd gone behind his back to promote him. It was nothing to do with me. Yeah, I suppose if it was an American magazine, they probably hadn't heard of any of the other actors' names. They probably couldn't pick who, who was the, uh, the, ne- the next fav- the next biggest star in yeah. the movie. They'll probably just about heard of Malcolm maybe with If... And they knew yeah. he, he was a star because he's on the poster. But yeah, so I bet they went through the list. Just had a film called Figures in a Landscape. Yeah, the one. He- so that came out to good reviews. Yeah, and I remember um, Malcolm turning to because um, it was uh, I don't know maybe nominated for an award or something like that, uh, probably a British one. And we were on set, and um, I remember Malcolm saying. All beaming smiles. Just see the awards. Just see the nominations. This is me. This is it. it, it. Who's going to get the award? And Warren turned around and said, "The helicopter." 
Because this is the film where I think Robert Shaw and Malcolm McDowell, I've seen the beginning of it actually. They're on the run, aren't they? They're on the run in, in yeah. the, well, in yeah. the landscape. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. so Warren's joking about the helicopter that was filming it, is it? Yeah. That was filming all these uh, scenes. Well, it was the three of them. It was the two actors and a helicopter. Yeah, right. Oh, was a helicopter? Is a helicopter chasing the actors? Is a helicopter in? I think so. I think so. Yeah, but I'm pretty certain that it features quite. (laughs) And uh, I just want to put Malcolm in his place. Yeah, which it's got to be done, hasn't it? You've got to keep those egos at bay. Do you remember speaking to the Italian guys back in the late nineties who made the? uh... No, uh, there were loads. There were Japanese. There were Italians, French. They were all. All sitting in my back garden at one stage or another during the late um, eighties, well, I guess. Well, the Italian yeah. one, the, the Italian one called Stanley and Us, Stanley and Us, um, right. that was filmed between ninety eight and two thousand and one. They, they came to England and interviewed every, oh, everybody. They got ev- everyone who was around. Philip Stone, um, right. <clears throat> quite a lot. They got even cast members from from As Wide Shut, the latest his latest film at that point. Whenever Stanley made a film of a genre, he probably made the best film of that genre, or certainly one of the best of that genre. Mm. So you've got to admire him uh, for that. But um, for me personally, Stephen, I think Clockwork Orange looks dated in most of it. It has a very thin plot line, which we've discussed. Very thin. Characterized, it, it, it's a strange film, mm. and it's only the first half hour that anyone ever talks about. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure how, how accessible it is to a modern audience, really. I mean, obviously, I look at it from being a, f- a fan of it, and I've probably got nostalgia also attached to it. Um, so, I, I, someone like me as a fan can't judge how well it's aged, uh, but I wonder if. My kids would look at that, obviously, they're not quite ready for it age-wise, but I wonder what they'd think of it, whether they'd just think, what? And maybe not get through it. I don't think the first half is dated, apart from, obviously, the styles and dressing, because it is a fiction. Mm. Um, I think the rest of it would send you to sleep. Really? Yeah. I think the the, the prison scenes and all that, I thought they're so, in a word, amateurish at times. Yeah. You know, that's the charm of it, I don't know. But it's not my favourite Kubrick film by a long chalk. No. Watched um, uh, Stanley's. He uh, put on a Clockwork Orange. Uh, sorry, he put on um, Space Odyssey for me, and and that first version uh, that um, I watched in his lounge was nearly four and a half hours long. Really? Yeah, it was great. You know, I just sat there not believing what I was doing. <laughs> Wow, I bet there's not many people seen the four and a half hour version. Uh, and I don't think I watched all of it. I, I vaguely remember that I having to leave to go and chat with him about the the film anyway. Mm. Sort of people tend to forget I'm there sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because if, if famously um, after 2001 was initially released. It hadn't been out many weeks, and he cut it. No, I think it was after the uh, the preview. Actually, he cut out twenty minutes. He just put his scissors in two places, cut out twenty two minutes from the middle of uh, um, Space Odyssey, and uh, that's the version everyone's seen. So I bet you saw those twenty two minutes that all the fans are. I'm sure. Pretty, for. I'm pretty certain that he had a seven or eight hour version. I'm pretty certain that there was, you know, there's a much, much, much longer version. <laughs> wow. 
because you know it's mesmerizing it was a, it was like a, an LSD trip wasn't it mm. in those days yeah it was a real uh I suppose a re- it was a, it had a real feel to it, didn't it? Just yeah, I, I won't even start trying to describe it because I'm not very good at uh, no. that kind no. of thing. Spartacus, I loved. I know he didn't like it, but I love Spartacus as one of the big epics. The, uh... I, I do from that from that uh, genre. Yeah, I love it. It's probably my favourite mm. from that sword and sandals yeah. or whatever you want to call them. Yeah, and I said, why don't you think Lord of the Rings? I even suggested it to him. Well, he, it, it was I connected. Never- to do another epic, he said, and yet he always wanted to do Waterloo or Napoleon. Yeah, it, it was connected to Lord of the Rings, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. John Lennon wanted yes. uh, the Beatles to play the four main guys, and he approached oh. he approached Kubrick in the early seventies to see if he wanted to direct the Beatles in Lord of the Rings, and, it, and yeah. um, Kubrick turned him down. Yeah, yeah, don't blame him. No, he's not the type of guy who'd want to make a film with the Beatles. I don't think, <laughs> really. Yeah, he don't yeah. want. He don't, he don't, I don't think he ever wanted actors to be bigger than the film, right? Or, be, or yeah. maybe big, or maybe a bigger name than his name, maybe. Yeah, star vehicle. No, he wouldn't do a star vehicle. Yeah, he kind of got forced to do it once or twice with uh, The Shining, Jack and Shelley. Well, Jack was. Top dollar, you know, he was a, a top star in, at the time, and again, he, he had to he had to do it with eyes wide shut, didn't he, with Tom Cruise? Uh, so he yeah, did, he's had to do it a couple of times. I think that's because Warner Brothers won't give him the money unless they're gonna make it back off a star's name. I mean, Eyes Wide Shut was another film that was misunderstood. Yes, absolutely misunderstood. Yeah, it, it, well, it was sold badly. It was sold as a as a uh, a Hollywood porno film yeah. almost and it wasn't it yeah. was just it was an exploration of marriage and jealousy which is what Stanley always said it was but yeah, yeah. It, it got whipped up into a frenzy and so people went and were disappointed because they were told one thing by the press and they got something yeah. they were told they were going to see uh, a lot of sex from two big Hollywood yeah. stars so when they didn't see that they had a disappointment if they hadn't been told that was going to happen they might have had a different reception in fact I'm sure it would Mm. Yeah, no, I, I felt very sad that that was uh, Stanley Swan song. I think he deserved better. Yeah, it's it's gaining a lot of ground. His eyes wide shut. Um, over the last ten years, that I've been running the Facebook group. Eyes wide shut is slowly becoming. It's getting into the top right. five. It's getting into the top five with fans. You know, yeah. again, yeah. As, we, as we know, you have to watch a Kubrick film several times for it to grow on you, uh, which is it unusual. Does. It's hard. It's yeah. yeah. It, it's strange, is that. But once once they grip you, they've got you. <laughs> so, well, I've just got three quick questions. I don't know whether they're going to be quick answers, okay. but, we, but we always ask these three questions um, as a finale. So, question: uh, the first one is, can you remember a time when Stanley and you had a laugh? Um... Most of the time, we get that same answer, no. Because <laughs> yeah, no, of no. the, ser- the serious work mind, yes. The very fact that I had conversations with him was rare. Yeah. And I was really appreciative at the time, and I realised the respect he was giving me as a 17 or 16 and 17-year-old to have snippet conversations about the film, about the scene, um, he, as I said earlier, he never closed the door on me. Um, 
on the editing fan. I could go in, I could watch the rushes, I could go out, I could come back, I could watch a few more rushes, I could enter a conversation with, oh, that looks great, or, oh, yeah, maybe, you know, and he would listen. And he never turned around and said, go away. He never turned around and said, you can't do this. Everyone else outside of the van, continuity crew saying, oh, you don't want to disturb Stanley. Mm. But for some reason, he allowed me that access, which was brilliant in the, in the first quarter. Yeah. And uh, those, are, those are the memories for me of um, being allowed to see how he worked and shared the process of these thoughts, etc. For those few months, so no. Um, but uh, no, uh, laughing Stanley jokes. Apart from you know the one I told you about when you're talking about New Yorkers, <laughs> and he decided to spend two minutes telling me how much he did dislike them. <laughs> I, I believe when he was relaxed, he was quite. Um... Quite, he had quite a good sense of humour, but he generally he wasn't. Did. Generally, not while he was working on set. But I, I believe yeah. he, did, he did have quite a, a, a vicious humour. Um, he did. So, did Stanley ever give you any advice on anything, whether it be acting or living or any advice you can remember? No, he wanted to see what you brought to the table. Mm. He didn't necessarily want to dictate to you. It became too contrived. Yeah. 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 No. And finally, in a few words, who is Stanley Kubrick? I guess professionally, Stanley is the most important person I've ever worked with in the film industry. The most influential and important person. Uh, he did lay uh, a foundation of how. Uh, I looked at working later. Um, so, you know, Stan is the most influential and important person I've ever worked with. Well, there you have it. Kubrick's Universe's first interview with the Droog. Maybe not the last, but I didn't say that out loud, did I? I meant to just think that. I do that sometimes. Thanks to James Marinaccio for writing this episode's intro, and to Stephen and James for conducting the interview with Mike Tarn. To coincide with the 10th anniversary of SCAS, also on November 26th, Wave Theory Records released a limited edition vinyl of 2001, A Garden of Personal Mirrors, the single written for Stanley Kubrick's masterwork, 2001, A Space Odyssey, by Mike Kaplan, so if you are on Facebook, and admit it, you, you are, you are, you're not going anywhere. They got you. Join us. <laughs> I mean, join the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society and Kubrick's Universe Facebook groups. You could do a lot worse. Trust me. I spent a lot of time on Facebook back when. You just go ahead, scour the whole thing, see if you can come up with two cooler groups for all things Kubrick. Or pretty much cooler than anything else out there for that matter. I mean, go on. I'll wait. Alright, alright, no. I'm, I'm not gonna wait, but go see for yourself. Seriously. And then, come back next month 
because we have a very special 50th episode as we continue to celebrate the 50th anniversary of A Clockwork Orange, which, as you heard earlier, made it into the vaults of the Library in Congress in 2020. So thanks very much for listening, everyone. We really do appreciate you joining us in Kubrick's universe. Until next time, I'm your host and humble narrator, Jason Furlong, saying, we'll meet again. Don't know where, don't know what, oh, actually I do know. We're going to meet up again in, in the next month and it's going to be awesome. It's Kubrick's universe. We just live in it. We have taken very thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human error. These guys aren't scientists. They're making it up as they go along. Thank you for listening to the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Come back soon. Over and out. This show comes to you from the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society.